This is an ABC podcast. Hi there, Edwina Farley with you for A Country Breakfast. As the war on waste gathered pace and our commitment to reducing plastic became, well, a bit of a mainstream goal, a lot of us were curious about why so much fresh produce was wrapped in the stuff. When you look at globally retailing, we probably use less packaging than they do in the UK or the US, but there's always opportunity for us to reduce it. We're working on how do we get more recyclable packaging. At the moment, most of our packaging is recyclable, but there's still elements of it that doesn't work through the recyclable chain. What supermarkets are doing to reduce plastic and what it could mean for the freshness of your food. First though, it has been a busy week in Canberra. All the night owls have had a very good run this week. Good morning, Serena Locke. Hello, Edwina. The budget, most exciting, billions of dollars allocated to natural disaster response in yep. this week's budget. It's essentially an election pitch, right? Yeah, that's right. So, And we did see an intense summer of floods, fires and cyclones. So what the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, has done is announce a $3.9 billion emergency response fund to ensure additional resourcing is available to support future national natural disaster recovery efforts. He proposes to withdraw up to $150 million each year following a significant disaster and it'll be managed by the Future Fund and pulled out whenever the emergency funds are exhausted. And that's in addition to a new Future Drought Fund worth up to $5 billion, which we remember the government announced late last year. And it's a really interesting concept because just a few years ago, both the Productivity Commission and the National Audit Office were really very critical of how we respond to natural disasters and the whole idea that bailout money is the focus and, in fact, recommended that it should be spent on mitigation rather than, oh, my God, something's gone wrong. So it'll be fascinating to see exactly how that's going to be administered and how you kind of trigger extra cash. What about the farm household allowance, that big ticket item of drought response? Well, that's the one that helps farming families just cope with the day-to-day expenses. There's only a small $3 million increase in that farm household allowance. And it uh, it's it's, at the moment, it's only going to 6,000 households, so there are up to 90,000 farming families. And um, there is, there's a means test on it at the moment. So what this will do um, is allow for farmers who are facing drought to sell their cattle and sheep but not show that against their income because that's been restricting their access to the farm household allowance. Mm, which is most interesting and, again, kind of... Tricky, isn't it? Because who knows how much they'll actually make from those cattle and sheep once they're at the point of having to sell them. But really, most interestingly, there was no overhaul of the drought policy in the budget. And and that's certainly what a lot of rural lobby groups were looking for. And that may become part of the election policy that both will now enter into. Um, The National Farmers Federation is really disappointed there's no drought policy. There hasn't been one for years. But the president of the NFF, Fiona Simpson, praises elements of the budget where there's $30 million for trialling payments for landholders to look after the environment. It's a biodiversity payments, a stewardship, and it'll establish a credit system that could be traded like the carbon trading scheme. 
It's got strong bipartisan support mm. and coupled with you know $2 billion towards the Climate Solutions Fund, which will help develop some of the methodologies that we need to start measuring some of the things that we do on farms, some of the positive environmental outcomes that we attain. Those sorts of things can move to very positive change, not just in how we do things, but in how we are perceived to do things. And you know, I think that that is really an absolute game changer and could be. It's just a pilot study at this stage, very early days, but to be able to get that into a budget and have bipartisan support for it means that whatever happens in the election, uh, you know, we look forward to seeing those initiatives in place. And the NFF has welcomed the government's commitment to regional infrastructure projects, saying that that'll help get produce to markets via road and rail, and also on improving the mobile phone coverage. So black spot funding has, um, has been listed again for funding. There were also some quirky, if you like, announcements, including one which made the main winners and losers story out of the budget, and one of the losers was Fire Ants. Yeah, so Fire Ants are the losers and those trying to control them, the winners. There's a commitment in this budget to apply um, uh, a levy on shipping containers and other cargo, and that'll raise $300 million to assist biosecurity. But to the Fire Ants, there's an extra $18.3 million to help the effort to eradicate um, those nasty biting ants and another $9 million for the yellow crazy ant in the Queensland tropics. Now, Andrew Cox from the Invasive Species Council has really welcomed that news. If they don't eradicate red and polluted fire ants from southeast Queensland, south of Brisbane, we will have fire ants across the whole country, there's no doubt about it, and the massive you know, billions of dollars worth of cost and the health and uh, agricultural impacts and the environmental impacts. So what the budget's done, it's brought forward some money from the federal government, $18 million extra to this program. Now, it's already a big program, $411 million over 10 years. But by bringing forward the money, it means they can get top, on top of it earlier. Now, there's not a massive focus in this budget on the resources sector, but they have been fairly pleased about quite a big spending commitment to roads, rail and air transport. Yeah, so that's the promise to spend $100 billion on regional infrastructure. But there's a catch, it's to be spent over a decade, and that's, of course, if the coalition wins the election. So in Queensland, for example, the budget will include $2.6 billion for new road and rail, like the Bruce Highway upgrades up the East Coast, the Gateway Motorway extension, and the Cairns Ring Road. But Queensland State Labor Treasurer Jackie Trad says the majority of that funding won't be seen until 2023-24 financial year. There's also spending for improving training. Yeah, so the um, Minerals Exploration Council has welcomed that. The budget includes a $525 million for a skills package, which in part's designed to help create 80,000 new apprenticeships in sectors with skill shortages. And Warren Pearce from the Mining Lobby Group says that in addition to that, mining will also benefit from the skills and trades investment. Our industry being heavily dependent on, on technology and innovation to be successful in mineral exploration um, really means or really needs that skill set coming through into our industry. Um, so there's a positive measures looking forward um, that our industry will certainly benefit from. Away from the budget, Sri Lankan dairy farmers say they've been financially ruined after hundreds of cows imported from Australia and New Zealand died or contracted diseases. 
Yeah, so that's right. The ABC's Investigations Unit has reported on a program that was designed to boost Sri Lanka's local milk production, but it's resulted in several hundred dead cattle. And the scheme was backed by the Australian government, still is, and involves Wellard Livestock Exporter, sourcing many dairy cows from Victoria and some from New South Wales and South Australia, also uh, some from New Zealand. Now, it's supposed to take 20,000 dairy cows. So far, 5,000 have been exported, but Sri Lankan farmers have told the ABC about 10 percent have died and let's hear from a dairy farm manager in central Sri Lanka Malik Gunaseka and he's had to bury his dead cattle and has some skinny cattle left over. From the beginning from the time these animals were brought here from the very first week these animals started dying. We started with 200 animals in total now at the moment our head count is 58. So some dairy farmers have lost a lot of money. They've paid up to $1,600 for a pregnant dairy heifer. And they were told the cows could produce 20 litres of milk a day once they'd calved, of course. Um, But they're reportedly producing only half of that. Now, in its defence, the Australian export company Wellard says vets checked the cattle in Australia and in Sri Lanka and that these dairy Frisian cross Jersey cows were suited to the tropics. And Wellard's executive chairman, John Klepek, says the program has been a success overall, except for a few farms that weren't feeding the cattle properly. We had this small recalcitrant um, group of farmers that refused to follow the advice and the specific uh, mortality rate that you're uh, referring to on that particular farm is a, accounts for the large amount of abnormal deaths that occurred on the second shipment. So Wellard says the project's going to continue, but they'll select the farms in Sri Lanka quite carefully. But even the Sri Lankan Attorney General has got involved and he's written a pretty damning report. He's described the project as an unbearable burden to the government and the farmers were misled and suffered financial and mental distress. So you can see that story on our ABC website. Now, in a world first, a robot is being used to pick a commercial apple crop at an orchard in New Zealand. Well, I think we all fear that robots are going to take our jobs and maybe it's starting already in New Zealand. So T&G Global operates the Hawke's Bay Orchard and has been developing a robot picker for the past four years with an American technology partner, Abundant Robotics. And Gary Wellwood from T&G says the robot's doing a good job picking the fruit, has a vacuum suction and it can harvest 40 bins of apples a day and would work alongside the quick apple picking humans. It's got computer vision that scans the canopy, uh, identifies fruit that it's uh, that are suitable for harvest, both position and maturity, and then it uh, has a, a, a vacuum uh, interfector that it places over the apple and sucks it off the tree. Sounds very efficient. Now I am very perplexed about this uh, proposition. In the next story, would you use soap? made of fish? Well, I think great-grandma used to make soap out of uh, boiled down rendered fat, so maybe it's not such an odd thing. (laughs) Turns out fish soap's good for your skin and and your tools if you're going fishing, guards against rust. And at the Gulf of Carpentaria, far north Queensland, it's pretty tough to get businesses going and tourism sort of declining. So one shopkeeper at Karamba has decided to develop barramundi fish soap, and the tourists are loving it. And Leo Wilding says it doesn't smell like fish once she done? I spent about three days doing it because I, I like um, making sure it's filtered properly and, you know, everything's done well. And it doesn't have that fishy smell once it's in the soap. 
You just blend the oils together, add it with a lime mixture, add your fragrance or essential oils and pour it into moulds. Delightful. Well, I'll let you test that, Serena, and you can uh, pass on the results to us, perhaps. Thanks, Serena. <laughs> Serena Log there with this week's Rural News Wrap. You can read more about all of those stories, including fishy soap, at our website, abc.net.au slash Radio National. The show that has won the hearts and minds of Australia returns to iView. What would having a job mean for you? Everything. Employable me. It's about my ability, not disability. Follow the extraordinary job seekers. This is my big adventure. Daring to dream. Most people could not have done what you've done. We're terribly lucky. I'm richer than you. Employable me. Seize the opportunity and just take it. Yeah! Watch now on iView. This week, meet the sculptor transforming timber toppled by a tropical cyclone into unique works of art. Share the love of the game with a rugby player who has been taking to the field for more than 70 years. We'll also visit a community project that has locals gathered around the sewing machine making reusable shopping bags and forging some new friendships. And discover why homegrown tomatoes are tastier than commercially farmed ones because the things that taste good, things like uh, sugars, some amino acids, which the tomato produces as antioxidants or as osmolites to help it cope with things like drought stress, salt stress. So most varieties, even that you think of as very good tasting varieties in the backyard, mostly the reason they taste good in a backyard but not from a commercial farm is because backyard gardens aren't as well looked after. Yeah, definitely guilty of that. We're going to make meet a market gardener adopting a novel approach to bringing out the best flavour. That's coming up. But first, let's hit the rugby pitch for a game where the players definitely don't have youth on their side. It's a warm Saturday afternoon in Bustleton in Western Australia's southwest and the crowd is cheering on the Duns for Dung Beetles rugby union team. They've hit the field for a Golden Oldies competition. It's a friendly rugby union game. There's no score counted and a little less physical, which is kind of important because their captain is an 82-year-old man. Yes, 82 years old. He's David Bell, known around the club as Southie, and he's ready for the match. Oh, it'll be brilliant. <laughs> it'll, be, it'll be great fun. Winning is not the thing, playing the game is the thing. Hi, I'm Kate Stevens. I'm here with Southie, who has been playing rugby union for longer than most of us have been alive, 76 years. His love of the game started in South Africa with his coach, Miss Mullins. I was in South Africa during the war, towards the end of the war, 1945 probably. I can actually remember, I remember this, as I was at a school in Grahamstown, um, which is in the Eastern Cape. Our teacher was a woman because there were no blokes there. And she was Miss Mullins. And I always remember that. And we played with leather footballs, which were very old and almost round, um, because they were so old. And that, that was when I was six. His rugby career spans three continents. 
played in England uh, as a, when, we, when I was at sea. We went, went to England and I played there in, with a club called um, Twickenham. They're not a big, big club, but Twickenham Club. The bloke who introduced me to the Twickenham Club introduced me to Cottesloe. I am now a life member of Cottesloe Rugby Club. It was in the 60s when Southie hit his peak, but even that, the modest player puts down to luck. I was lucky enough, to, which was a bit of a surprise to me, to play for the state team for, for two years in 63 and 64. And uh, that was, that was um, something I never expected because I'm not the greatest rugby player in the world. <laughs> and, uh, then, but then I played with Cottesloe and then we moved down here and I found a rugby club here called the Dung Beetles. Dunsborough Dung Beetles and um, it was just one of those wonderful things that happened and I've been with them for just over 20 years now. It's the people. I love putting the ball through their hands. You know, yesterday we had a little evening here and it was just lovely to be surrounded by rugby people. People who love the game as much as I do and, and we all are just enjoying the the thing of being together and this coming together, we're all excited, we're like these little kids all shouting in the background, we're all excited about being together with a whole lot of new guys um, who play rugby. It's just one of those lovely things that a rugby person is a rugby person and you meet them anywhere in the street and you can sit down and have a chat. Well the, the lovely thing about rugby here is that, you know, when I first came here it wasn't very good rugby and so consequently they thought I was quite good, which wasn't actually the fact. And then and it, it sort of slowly grew, and I was a South African that came and played rugby here. And then the New Zealanders started to arrive. And uh, even in my club, um, we had two New Zealanders turned up at Cottesloe to play, and they lifted the, the standard exponentially. Southie might be modest about his skills but he is well known around the Dung Beatles club. He can't take two steps without someone stopping him and wanting a chat. After the nil-nil match, club captain Wayne Flood says the man is an absolute legend. He loves playing touch rugby with the boys and obviously you would have seen him running around today and, and he played a full game, you know, at second row he was locked, you know, he wanted to play locked. He was out there enjoying it and we're out there with him. It inspires them to turn up and play touch when Southie's there. He'll play touch every Friday, you know, as long as there's someone to play touch against, he's there. Can you believe that he's 82? We can't, you know, we all look, look at him and reflect and look at ourselves, you know. I'm only 52 and, you know, he's 82, you know, so, um, yeah, we just enjoy the moment with him, you know, he's a legend. Southie is easily the eldest member of his team. The average age is around 35 to 55, but on the touch field, his opponent can be as young as six. I play touch rugby every week with the kids. And uh, one of the great things about it is if I do make a little, through a little hole in, in the defence, a six-year-old kid runs me down and pats me on the bottom and says, touch. <laughs> Bit depressing when that happens. So, how many more seasons does Southie have in him? My boots fell to, to pieces and I, and I was pretty furious about that and I think uh, maybe there was a message in that. You either play with one boot or you stop playing altogether. But I, I will keep playing touch rugby till I can't.
Darwin-based wood sculptor Joel Mitchell is busy in his workshop, tinkering away. From a young age, Joel has had a real passion for working with timber and a real love for trees, the trees of Darwin. Climbing trees and making swings and cubbies and, you know, stick fights with the neighbourhood kids. and <laughs> Yeah, working with timber and sculpting and um, working creatively with timber is something that I've always loved to do. When Cyclone Marcus approached Darwin last year as a Category 2 system and winds of up to 130 kilometres an hour, Joel's thoughts quickly turned to the trees. I remember the night before, um, the day before, when I, obviously there's a cyclone coming and we had to prepare. And uh, I remember texting my mates saying... Um, Look, if you see some really good trees around town, can you let us know? So after the cyclone, we can uh, go and collect them, <laughs> um, having no idea of the uh, devastation and the mass of trees that did fell. G'day there, my name's Matt Brand, and I've come here to meet Joel in his workshop, where he's been turning some of this salvaged timber from Cyclone Marcus into some beautiful pieces of art. The cyclone had actually came at a pretty good time for Joel, who had just chucked in his job as a teacher to take up wood sculpting full time. All of a sudden it was just this incredible kind of wave of momentum and interest and materials to use and creative ideas. Was it easy getting your hands on this timber? Because as you mentioned, a lot of it fell down in, in public areas. It was a bit of a blur really it was a bit of a frenzy as such because obviously there was different phases of you know the initial emergency phase of making sure that everything is safe and then the huge job that council had doing the, the mass cleanup and um, people were pretty receptive I think you know I think there were some people that didn't necessarily understand you know had a fairly clear focus of let's clean it up and not worry about what we do with the timber but there was a community response to say we want to do something significant with these trees can we work out a way to actually reclaim some of them and use them for creative purposes into the future. These unique pieces that Joel has crafted from the fallen trees will soon be used as metal podiums when Darwin hosts the Arafura Games later this year. We got a phone call uh, last year um, about the, from the Arafura team with an idea of using reclaimed timber um, from Cyclone Marcus um, for the metal podiums, uh, which I was really excited about. You know, such a great way to, um, to use the timber to showcase the different ways that it can be used creatively. I think it's going to be a pretty special kind of metal ceremony having these trees that, that we're all connected with because these are the trees from our parklands, these are the trees from our schools, these are the trees that we've grown up under and yeah, now that they're part of the Arafura Games, I think it's um, pretty special. Uh, we've got some of your work here. Explain to us what we're looking at. We've got three uh, species of timber that we've chosen to use that really kind of symbolises different parts of the games and symbolises different um, backgrounds and stories of the athletes. So first place we have rain tree, which is an incredibly beautiful timber. It's got this in really beautiful contoured lines for the heartwood, which is a darker timber a darker brown timber and uh, the, heart, the sapwood is really light and uh, so you get this beautiful contrast between the light and the dark. 
And uh, second place is the ghost gum um, in the eucalypt family. And that's a very dense, hard timber. It's obviously um, unique and endemic to Darwin in the top end. It's really quite stunning. And, uh, and then third place? The third place is African mahogany, you know, a tree that we are all so connected to because mm. it's been such a part of our recent history in the last 50 or so years, um, post-cyclone uh, Tracy. The timber itself is stunning. It's, uh, it's incredibly beautiful, uh, coloured, and uh, the figure in it is really unique. So come Arafura Games time, and hopefully the Australian National Anthem playing, and there's athletes standing behind your timber, how do you think you'll feel? Yeah, pretty special. It's a really nice thing to really showcase. I mean, I'm passionate about timber and using it in creative ways and also sustainability. So it's a real great way to really showcase as a community of, of the potential of how we can really use the beautiful timber that we have on our doorsteps in different ways, in architecture or furniture or sculpture or whatever ways that there's uh, local... There's local uh, timber mills. There's a lot of avenue to actually source locally harvested timber. And um, so, it's, yeah, I think that's pretty special to be able to showcase that and to give people a glimpse of what's possible. Sculptor Joel Mitchell, his unique timber artworks will be featured as medal podiums when Darwin hosts the Arafura Games later this year. He was speaking with Matt Bran. You're with a country breakfast on RN. Still to come, a sewing project with the aim of creating local connections in the face of declining community groups. And we'll visit a market garden where the focus is on growing and harvesting the tastiest crops. I'll show you under here been harvesting potatoes on this bench. George Hartley is showing me the last of the season's potato crop. That particular plant's been half-picked, but there's an enormous amount of fruit on them when grown like this. Potatoes are just one of the many lines of produce George and his wife Hilary grow at this market garden at Saltwater River on Tasmania's Tasman Peninsula. You can see that. There'd be about uh, two or three kilos on that plant. Hi, I'm Hugh Hogan. As I walk through the garden with George and Hillary, they point out leeks, capsicums, chilies, strawberries, grapes, lemongrass, the list goes on and on. The produce grown here is sent on to small retailers, mostly in Hobart. At the moment, we're concentrating on Brussels sprouts, leeks, broccoletti, but over the years we've grown a lot of salad mix, microgreens. We used to grow a huge amount of gourmet salads, but last year we we basically grew everything from tomatoes to rock melons and watermelons and capsicums, broccoli, cauliflower, broccoletti. The Hartleys made the move to Tasmania about a decade ago, leaving Western Australia where they'd been growing vegetables for 20 years. We looked for quite a while actually, we thought maybe it was a mistake coming here, but then we moved on to the peninsula looking around and we thought this is paradise, didn't we? <laughs> At first we thought oh, we couldn't find flat land to build a greenhouse on and it was hard to find climate stats that were really going to work perfectly and we started to think, oh, Tasmania is like some people, you know, uh, nice to visit but hard to live in. <laughs> Having grown melons for years in the West, 
This year, they trialled them in Tassie. It was just a pilot uh, this year, really, pilot project, and they went extremely well. We did both rock melons and watermelons. The key issue is is getting uh, cold-tolerant varieties, but not old heirloom varieties, um, because most of the heirlooms are heirlooms for a very good reason. <laughs> and uh, they have problems with too much seed or too small a, 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 you know, a flesh um, percentage or whatever. But these are actual commercial hybrids from, from Europe. They grow best under, under plastic here. We have a look in here. So this is a, you can see the melons on the on your left there. I've picked most of these ones, but there's still a few in here. Okay, if we move down a bit, and most of them are about six to eight kilos. I think there's some much down here I still haven't picked. They got a really rapt reception. People were very very positive about them and a little bit surprised to see them growing in Tasmania. No matter what they're growing, the Hartleys are always focused on growing for taste. It's all to do with picking things when they're ripe, which is you know, our name is grown for taste and that's one of the things we've concentrated on is to pick things when they're at proper maturity rather than for a long transport. So, for example, in, in Western Australia we grew rock melons one year, took them up by the roadside and we sold $500 worth of uh, rock melons in about an hour. And what often happened there was people would stop to buy one, chuff off down the road and in five or ten minutes would be back to buy another two or three. Obviously they had a little taste. <laughs> and that is the difference. Um, Everything that we do, we aim more for the taste than anything else. When it comes to tomatoes, the Hartleys go that extra mile to produce flavour. Most varieties only produce flavour in response to being stressed. That's Joe Hartley, George's son. He helps out on the farm when he's not doing his PhD at the University of Tasmania. Because of things that taste good, uh, things like uh, sugars, some amino acids, which the tomato produces as antioxidants or as osmolites to help cope with things like drought stress, salt stress. So most varieties, even that you think of as very good tasting varieties in the backyard, mostly the reason they taste good in a backyard but not from a commercial farm is because backyard gardens aren't as well looked after. Uh, if you have a, a big tomato greenhouse which has perfectly regulated temperature, a very gentle nutrient solution and you know water always there, there's no stress and no motivation for the tomato to produce flavour. So it's a tricky balance. Uh, you have to usually sacrifice at least 10% of your yield in order to get good flavour. But it's a huge difference. You know, and, and we've, well, when we say we, Dad actually, has run some interesting experiments in the past taking some of the most notoriously flavourless varieties it could find and seeing if he could make them produce flavour. And he did. Um, nearly killed them to do it. But, you know, there's a, there's a fairly pathetic yield. But they, they did eventually produce very good flavoured tomatoes. We actually, if we're growing tomatoes in the ground, we actually side dress them with normal table salt. And that stresses them and, uh, and brings out the flavour. So you, the idea is to, to grow the plant in a uh, vegetative phase as kindly as you can. <laughs> until they start to have green fruit. So they can get a nice, big, strong plant with lots of fruit set. And that's when you start being nasty. And then you stress it, you, you water stress it, stress it with changes to the nutrient solution, all sorts of things. And that fruit then will produce flavor like it wouldn't otherwise. But all our growing is done on benches like this with a compost, oh, about four or five inches of compost on the top. And then underneath that is a drainage layer we actually feed them uh, every hour with a, uh, for a couple of minutes with a hydroponic feed. Carefully balanced uh, solution of nutrients and trace elements so we know that they're getting absolutely everything. 
A lot of soils in Tasmania are really short on certain elements, particularly trace elements. So it doesn't matter how organically or how well you grow those things, if the um, essential minerals are not actually in the soil, they won't have them. So we're not taking any chances there. We supply a completely balanced nutrient solution as well as the compost, which, which is great for carbon and so forth. Would you have any idea of how many metres squared of hydroponic setup you'd have? Uh, probably half an acre, I suppose. How much would you produce off of that? Oh, goodness me. Um, it's enough to live off. There's plenty to live off. It's amazing. So you've got half an acre here and it's, you're doing fine. Yeah, we make a living off that. No problem at all. On one of the main streets of Mount Tambourine in the Gold Coast hinterland, a once empty shop front is buzzing with activity. Hi, I'm Caitlin Sheehan and I'm here with some of the locals who are gathered around sewing machines and irons busily working away. This production line is part of a pop-up sweatshop and it's the idea of local textile artist Beck Anderson. This is called so local, S-E-W, So Local Sweatshop, and it is a community engagement project where we are creating a factory production line to sew shopping bags. Why did you get this started? <sighs> okay, um, trained as an industrial designer, very interested in mass production. I actually design and produce hand-tufted rugs, so I work as a, as a kind of like factory kind of concepty thing myself, and it's part of my training, so getting people together, sewing to create connections with people. That's the real primary thing that we're doing. Uh, the second thing is we're educating. We're educating about, um, well, first of all, learning to sew. So getting youngies with oldies sewing. We're educating about overuse of plastics. That's a big one. We're also doing a bit of conversation around fast fashion and slow clothing. We're also activating an, a vacant shop front. There's several of them on the mountain. Vacant shop fronts don't really rock it. And the byproduct, of course, is 200 limited edition bush turkey bags. Bush turkey bags. Now, I'm watching everyone as they're producing these beautiful bags around the room here. Oh my goodness, look at this. How many do we have here so far? We have done, where's done? I think we're on 20, 40, 60, 80 today. This afternoon we'll finish to 100, which is halfway. 100 and how many days? A session of three hours creates 20 bags. Pretty good. Yeah. yeah. And that's amazing. And they're all different kinds of fabrics. Where have you sourced all these beautiful fabrics from? Yeah, so local community have um, brought some in. So people who have joined in to do a workshop bring a piece of fabric. They might have found it in an old cupboard. They might have gone to an op shop. We cut them into two bags. They get to keep one themselves and then they pass one to someone in the community with the message of the bag behind it. Really important that we get that out there. That's a lovely message to pass on. So what are you hoping with this project to then inject into the community around here? Well, I think it's, well, the byproduct, of course, is the bags. So hopefully they stay on the mountain. It'd be nice. But yeah, it's really about connecting people. That's my primary thing. It's really about using art. It's a powerful tool to connect people. If you want to go down the mental health track, creativity, using your hands, uh, removes negative thoughts and reduces anxiety. So that's another one. Getting people together, putting music on, making things, all very positive. What a lovely way to connect with local people and meet people as well. Meet people and meet people and sometimes people are shy. So having a project to connect them is like, that's the powerful thing about it. Amy, I believe you're the sidekick in this whole 
production here. <laughs> Sidekick is the best word for it. <laughs> Why did you want to get involved in this project? I was sewing, I do sew boomerang bags um, for Tamarine Mountain. I guess it's just something I'm passionate about. So, And what are you loving about the uh, process so far? I think getting groups of people together sewing. That's probably, and people who haven't sewn before them building that confidence to get on a sewing machine and just to give it a go and then to discover it's actually not that hard. There's just some straight stitching things for people who aren't confident, people who don't want to get on a sewing machine, there's ironing things they can do but they're watching people sew and realising oh it's not that hard, I might just jump on and have a go. We're losing community, we don't have these community groups anymore, we have a few of them but not particularly with my generation coming together and sewing. Yeah, it's the truth. I think about my mum. She's a quilter and she will quilt to her heart's content by herself in her little sewing room. But it used to be part of a quilting group years ago, but that dissolved and they're not really around anymore like they used to be. Not, not that I'm aware of. So I sit at home and I sew. Um, it's a big mental health thing for me. I have three small children. <laughs> it's mental health thing in itself. Um, and for me, being at home, sewing, I really do think got me through those early years of my small children I had something that was for me and when you're sewing when you're creating everything else goes away because you're concentrating on what you're doing so I guess it's that whole being there in the moment and then to give that skill to other people who can go home and do it but then it's taking it that next step by doing it in a group now I mean I would like to see a um, a sew local set up somewhere perhaps with a bar I'm heading down to the so local, can sew some bags for the community and have some um, mental health time. You're on true winner, Amy. I'm liking this idea. I think so. <laughs> I'm just, now I'm looking for a venue and then I've got to find the funding to fund it. <laughs> Sounds like a great idea to me. <laughs>
It's certainly something that concerns our customers and concerns us as well. When you look at globally retailing, we probably use less packaging than they do in the UK or the US, but there's always opportunity for us to reduce it. We're working on how do we get more recyclable packaging. At the moment, most of our packaging is recyclable, but there's still elements of it that doesn't work through the recyclable chain. So we're working hard with people like the ARC. Uh, we also have a dedicated team within our own business working on how we reduce unnecessary plastic. But it's also about a balance with food waste as well. So you can't look at one in isolation of the other. So we're looking at it from the, the perspective of how do we reduce food waste and unnecessary packaging within our retail chain. Well, I know recently we've heard talk, for example, about uh, plastic around bananas. They already have a skin. Plastic around individual cucumbers. Is, is that something that's necessary? Not in all cases. And, and in some cases, we've removed those. So, for example, organic bananas. Uh, we have a band around organic bananas. We do sell a kid's banana in, in packaging. And we're looking at, even though that, that packaging is recyclable, how do we do it in a better way, in a, in a better uh, customer offer? And cucumbers, generally the, the shrink wraps around continental cucumbers, and in fact their shelf life is significantly shortened if they're not wrapped, which leads to higher food waste. So we've got to figure out a better way of doing it. How do we remove the plastic but not shorten the shelf life of the product? So there's some complex issues to solve, but we're rapidly working towards how can we get that uh, to come to life. I know Greenpeace have a petition online uh, to urge the supermarkets to cut the amount of plastic on fresh produce. Yep. What's your view on that? Oh, well, we're in discussions with people like Greenpeace because there's, there's many different views about how we should approach this. There aren't simple solutions, so there's not simple off-the-shelf solutions that uh, we can put in place tomorrow, but certainly we're working with everyone within the industry. And what's really good is the whole industry is now engaged in finding solutions for this. It isn't just about a retailer. Um, and I think that we're heading rapidly towards being able to resolve some of these issues. Do you think there'll come a time where we take plastic off fresh produce? Difficult to say. If you think about things like fresh cut salads, it's about how do we make it a closed loop environment. More than removing plastics, it's about how do we reuse that plastic within the system so it doesn't go into landfill. There's two types of cucumbers. One is wrapped in plastic, one isn't. Why is that the case? I think it's just the nature of the product. Uh, if you have got take continental cucumbers, Lebanese cucumbers have a much thicker skin and they seem to have a much longer shelf life um, in, in the ambient space than what a continental cucumber does. You're saying there's that fine line between plastic packaging and waste. So just to explain what you mean there. So it's probably more about balance. So if you look at the food waste through the chain, where we have food waste going into landfill and environment and the carbon footprint that is in place to actually produce that product and get it through the supply chain, sometimes that can be greater an impact than perhaps what the plastic in landfill. Neither of them are good for the environment, so we've got to find the balance between making sure that we can get the right amount uh, through both. If we remove just plastic, that could increase food waste. So we've got to make sure that we step our way through this properly so that we don't have a worse impact on the environment and particularly on growers. Do you have any hints or ideas about how you might be um, taking on this problem? If, if you look at things like berries, for example, they make up a significant um, part of the supply chain with customers and they, they have to be packed in punnets because of the nature of the product and preserving the quality of that product. So 
what is the best solution for that, even though it's recyclable? Is there a better solution for the punnets? So some of those areas, the big ticket items, are the things that we're looking at. Paul Turner there, the head of fresh produce at Woolworths. Well, scientist Felicity Denham expects packaging of fresh produce is here to stay, but she believes we'll see more environmentally friendly wrap around food in the future. The researcher is looking at the impact of waste in the leafy salad and vegetable supply chain, and she says food waste can be as big a problem as plastic waste. Felicity Denham told Fiona Breen her preliminary research has found there are some good recycling options. I found out that in the leafy salad vegetable supply chain there is very little waste that occurs in industry which is very surprising but also the, the waste that does occur occur in this supply chain is all recycled so some go, go to seed farmers um, for feed others are recycled um, by anaerobic digestion into energy and some is donated to charity. These uh, packets of leafy greens or boxes of leafy greens? Or? Um, most of the leafy greens these days are sold in bags. So what happens with the packets then? I mean, surely plastic is a problem? Plastic is a, a problem, yes, but um, plastic also works to, re to increase the self shelf life. So if you buy, buy, say, the leafy greens loose, um, and take them home, you'll have to wash them and eat them within a few days. If you buy the packets, then you'll have a few more extra days to, um, to hold them in your fridge, so you, you'll have more chance of eating them before it goes off. So by doing that, you might actually be reducing your waste because you've got a longer shelf life and your product doesn't go off as much. Um, but as you said, it does create plastic waste, so you've got to weigh up the differences between um, plastic waste and and um, food waste. Well, I know Woolworths are looking at this issue at the moment, the difference between plastic waste and food waste, what's better, what's worse. Is that something you're looking at at all? Definitely. Oh, most plastics don't break down in landfill, so um, it stays as it is. If it does break down, it usually breaks down into tiny little pieces that aren't good for the environment. Food waste, however, does break down into carbon dioxide and methane, which create dangerous uh, um, greenhouse gas emissions. So it depends on what type of um, environmental impact that you're concerned about. So we're talking about two different evils here. <laughs> yes. It's, um, do you want to have solid landfill or do you want to have greenhouse gas emissions? What's surprising you about your results so far? I know it's preliminary. Um, so far it's um, surprising... Well, not surpri surprisingly, but uh, encouragingly, I, I've seen that the industry um, are doing the best that they can to reduce their food waste and to recycle what does occur. Are you getting a hint about what the future might be? I know I spoke to Woolworths about plastic packaging on fresh food products, even cucumbers and bananas. Are you getting a sense that uh, there is a, a different way in the future? I'm, I'm um, very um, encouraged to see that there are more bio, biodegradable um, packaging coming through. But yes, we are a society that consumes a lot of packaging. Um, I think the idea of the future in packaging is to find environmentally friendly ones, whether they're reusable, so that you clean them and take them back to the beginning to be used again, or um, biodegradable, so they become compost in your garden. So you think we'll always need them? I think in the, in the day and age where we consume ready-to-eat food rather than 
you know, 20, 30 years ago where everything was cooked from scratch, that yes, packaging is something that our society needs, but it's more the smart packaging that um, increases the shelf life and the, and the length that your food stays fresh, as well as um, looking after the environment. Food scientist Felicity Denham speaking there with Fiona Breen. Well, the death of dollar a litre supermarket milk has come as a welcome reprieve to dairy farmers who supply fresh milk in Australia. But in Queensland, where the number of dairy farms has dropped from 700 to 360, diversifying what you do can make all the difference. Jennifer Nichols has the story of a farm that now supplies an independent processor, welcomes campers and takes farm tours. It's afternoon milking time at Aidedale Dairy and Karen Polger's bringing in the cows as her husband takes guests on a tour. Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I'm Shane Polger. Um, my wife and myself and our family own this farm, Aidedale. They milk jerseys and Holstein cows on the Kenilworth farm that was founded by Shane Polger's parents. They drove the cattle down the road in a very humble beginning with 36 head of cows coming down the road from Walleye Mountain and um, brought them into this property and developed what is probably one of the most picturesque and productive dairy farms in Queensland today. We're very proud of our achievements. We've got wonderful cows and beautiful farm and unfortunately, well fortunately for you I suppose that we've had to go into camping to cross subsidise our farming interest, our farming passion. The industry has been so tough for so long since deregulation that um, we were forced into looking for other avenues of keeping ourselves afloat. The tours are designed to educate visitors. I believe strongly that farmers in general haven't told their message to the consumer over the years and I think that for too long we've taken for granted that the consumer understands us and they do feel for us a lot of time with drought and floods and fires and so on and so forth but the part that we're trying to play now is educating people where their milk in particular comes from. The guests learn that the gestation period for a pregnant cow is around the same as for a human and that the cows are fed a special diet of salts to build up their calcium reserves. My father and myself and my family have been very stringent and strict on stud and type with our tremendous success in the show rings around the country that our cows do last longer because they're built the right way. They're type, that's mammary systems and structure and legs and feet are all structurally very sound. Our herd is actually, you know, recognised across Australia as one of the best herds in the country. They're currently milking around 370 cows, but that will increase up to 450 at the peak of the season, just weeks away. At Aderdale, cows are kept for an average of 12 to 13 years before they are culled from the herd which is about nine to ten lactations. We can get out of the cow before she gets to the edge where she's not really productive. We've got new genetics coming on, so we're replacing all the time. We're replacing cows. Uh, it's an unfortunate process. People won't say that it's a bit rough, but you know, um, we can't afford to feed cows that aren't producing, and, and not all cows are successful in producing, so they're all herd recorded, and we keep data on them, and if they don't, if they've got um, suspect milk that's not the highest quality, they might be culled on that. They might be culled on, um, on other things, um, but it's mainly productivity, because as I said, this is a very, very tough business we're in. You know, the margins are so skinny. You know, we're not in a drought here, but our cereal that you'll see fed to the cows there is coming from Western Australia at the moment, all the way from Western Australia. Huge cost. It increased our grain costs about 80%, um, quoting to about eighteen to $19,000 per month extra on our grain costs alone. 
Shane Pulger has praised Mulaney Dairies. They're now supplying the independent processor. Yeah, it's been a godsend, Mulaney Dairies and uh, Hopper family. We wouldn't be here only for them now, I can say. You know, the last 12 months has been very difficult, I've got to say, Jennifer. Um, yeah, thank goodness we've been getting well supported from Mulaney Dairies and they're paying a sustainable price and we hope that we can uh, build that uh, relationship with them into the future. The organised tours are part of a relatively new business venture for the dairy farm, which has opened its river flats to campers. We saw the need a couple of years ago to uh, have a look at what else was available and our beautiful picturesque farm lends itself to what we're doing today and um, it's been quite successful to date. But unfortunately we're still having our little battles with council about uh, you know, what we can and can't do and um, uh, there is a, a case coming forward so I'm just not at liberty to talk too much about that and um, we are sort of pursuing council and this just can't be done, a lot of the things they want us to do. Sunshine Coast Council declined to comment in detail while court action is underway but confirmed the conditions Kenilworth Camping is appealing include fencing, rehabilitation and camping exclusion areas on the floodplain and other issues like effluent disposal and toilet and shower facilities. Currently it's very basic camping. Portaloos are the only things supplied, but guests like Barb appreciate the experience. I think it's great. I think it's great to supplement their income. It's great for people to learn more about dairy and it's just contributing to the local economy. I think it's fantastic. Shane's wife Karen's just let go of the feed, bringing the girls into the bales. Karen, Paul, do you enjoy having the people in and seeing the looks on the kids' faces? <laughs> Absolutely. It's a world away for them. I think the parents enjoy it as much as the children, to be honest. Well, for a lot of them, the only place they see milk is in the supermarket. Yes. So to yep. actually see that it comes from a cow and how it all works. Yeah, this is grassroots here. And I think all children need to be, you know, somewhere along the line they should be exposed to see this because this is what life is all about. I think they take a, a new appreciation home with them to the cities and I think that's um, agriculture in general I think has failed in, in um, putting our message out there about local and fresh and, and green and uh, all the positives that you know we as farmers try to promote. Shane Paulger from Ayerdale Dairy and Kenilworth Camping speaking with our reporter Jennifer Nichols on the Sunshine Coast. And that's the program for this week. Some more brilliant stories from around rural Australia coming your way next week. Lots of good listening ahead this morning though. Stay with us, won't you, on RN. been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.